Make sure you stay tuned to the end of the episode for an announcement about the show in the coming weeks. The Connecticut River Valley, with its tranquil waters, lush landscapes, and quaint communities, has long been celebrated as a picturesque haven. Yet beneath this facade of serene beauty lies a chilling mystery that has haunted this region for decades. Hidden behind the tree-lined riverbanks and seemingly safe streets, a dark history with a complex tapestry of fear and intrigue woven by an elusive serial killer was left behind. During a span of several years, towns across the Connecticut River Valley were haunted by someone who was on a mass killing spree. Today, we're revisiting those communities where a pulse of fear gripped those otherwise peaceful towns as the killer struck repeatedly. Families were left in the agonizing limbo of uncertainty, towns forever scarred by whoever haunted their streets, and a region left with unanswered questions that continue to echo through the years. It's our hope today that by revisiting these sad and terrible crimes, we can keep the flame of this investigation going, and perhaps one day, unmask the perpetrator. This is the story of the Connecticut River Valley Killer. Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. So today, we're doing, I guess, a little, we don't cover a whole, whole lot of serial killers, because they're kind of, it's kind of difficult. Yeah. Well, usually we know the identity of the serial killers right and most yeah and it's i think it's hard in these cases too because i feel like we don't get to dive as much into the background of the victims because there's always you know several right and there are quite a few today but we're gonna talk you know briefly about all of them and i think there's 12 ish oh wow okay yeah So the Connecticut River Valley murders were a series of unsolved homicides and disappearances that really plagued this very beautiful area of the Connecticut River Valley. And they mainly took place in the 80s, um, though a few were the very late 70s. Okay. This set of crimes really did leave almost like a chilling mark on the area Mm -hmm. and so today we're going to dive into this murder spree and we're going to briefly talk about the victims because like i said there are so many well there are several confirmed and then several possible so we'll talk about some of those um talk about some investigative efforts that were put into place and then of course some theories 
And while the identity of the killer or killers remains unknown, you know, I still want to know what you think at the very end. Okay. So I, as I was reading, I came across a statistic in some of the research and I was like, you're lying. So then I Googled it. But did you know that most authorities believe that there are as many as 100 serial killers just living among us here in the United States? You know, as shocking as it is, I do feel like I read it somewhere in passing. And it might have been when I was reading about one of the theories that we've talked about before of there being Mm -hmm. serial killers. But that is terrifying. And you know, given the population of the United States, 100 people, mm-hmm. it's not a lot of people. No. But then when I was talking to Anthony about it, he was like, like well, that's two, two per state. state. Yes. Yeah. I thought the exact same thing as Anthony did. Yep. That was the first thought that came to my mind. Which then I think makes it a little scarier. Yeah. Now, in all likelihood, that's probably not how it pans out because I'm sure that there's more likely mm-hmm. to be one in places of larger population. But, you know, I say that, and really almost all the crimes we talk about take place in small towns. So, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. And then I was thinking about, you know, which I guess even if it's not a serial killer and it's just a murderer, I mean, they could be anybody, which is then terrifying. So it could be like, Mm -hmm. you know, the one cashier that they have at Walmart Mm-hmm. It could be the older man that lives down the street, the yeah. lady that delivers your mail. Yeah. And then I was at home by myself working on this. And then I was like, well, I'm never opening my door ever again when right. he's not home. <laughs> and then you're like, it could be the Amazon driver who's knocking at my yeah. door right now. Yeah. 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 So they're just going to have to put my packages on the on porch because I'm not opening That's the right. door. <laughs> <laughs> and... I know I've said this to you several times on the show that I think you should have gone to work as a profiler for the FBI. (laughs) Because you just have such a way of placing yourself not only in the shoes of our victims and their families, but also into the shoes of possible killers. Because you come up with so many good like theories and tidbits that I really feel like that could have been your calling as well. I always try to psychoanalyze. I'm fascinated by what drives people to do certain things. See, so you should have been a profiler for the FBI. I should have been. I missed my calling. Yeah. It's never too late. (laughs) I might be too old at this point. I had a friend that texted me today and she was like, I need a job. And she was like, but I'm seven months pregnant and I feel like. Who's going to hire a seven-month pregnant lady? She was like, I'm in a crisis. (laughs) I'm in a crisis. (laughs) I was like, so it's never too late. Start over. (laughs) Well, hey, if somebody who works for the FBI is listening and you have a need for profilers, call me. Yeah. (laughs) She can take on a third job. It's fine. Yeah. She has time. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) And... You know, especially in cases of serial killers, one of the biggest challenges that police often face is trying to understand how a killer thinks that would make them kill again and again. Mm -hmm. And that step of the process, you know, the figuring out why or when they could strike again, 
is about as far as we got in the investigation of the case for this week. Okay. So we do get a profile, but no real results. So I'll be interested to hear your take on things as we progress. Okay. According to Unsolved Mysteries, since 1978, so like I said, it was late 70s when this Uh started, the bodies of seven young women have been discovered within a 50-mile radius in the Connecticut River Valley, so along the New Hampshire and Vermont border between Route 91. Okay. One of the biggest hurdles most of the time in investigating serial murders is finding enough evidence to connect all the pieces of the puzzle together. Mm-hmm. Like to know that this murder is linked to this murder is linked to this mm-hmm. one. And I feel like that often takes a long time. And then when we're talking about it or you're watching like a documentary, you want to be like, duh, dummies. Yeah. Come you're on. Like, Why didn't it's you clear. See this? Yeah. Why didn't you see this from the beginning? Yeah. But they didn't have a super big issue you know, connecting those dots in this case. Oh. Because most of the attacks were pretty similar. Mm. So there's like something, there must be something identifiable then, something different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was things like um, all the victims suffered similar stab wounds in similar areas of the body. Okay. Most were found off of smaller roads like dirt roads or in more secluded areas okay there were some say some sources say that one victim was sexually sexually assaulted some sources say that none of the victims were so that Mm -hmm. one's kind of a little bit of an outlier Mm -hmm. but some of the causes of death were hard to determine because the crimes were so heinous oh wow Um, oftentimes the bodies were so well hid in these remote areas that causes of death couldn't be determined because too much time had passed. Okay. Yeah. And then of course you have the factor that victims were found close to one another, though often months or years apart, but they're all within that Mm. like 50 mile radius. Interesting. Okay. So the first two sets of remains that would be found were actually found months apart, but they were only 1000 feet apart from each other oh wow that's really close and both of course died due to multiple stab wounds um well that's what we assume though the official cause couldn't be determined because of decomposition but Mm. they were stabbed multiple times between those two bodies being found another woman was also found stabbed to death in her own home Then we had another set of remains that was found with stab wounds being the cause of death. Ten days after that body was found, the remains of a third missing woman were found. And Mm. she also was subject to multiple stab wounds. So all these discoveries happened in a very narrow timeline. Right. And so as, and I think that helped connect the dots. Because as they're finding more and more... There's so many similarities. They're like, oh, well, this one was just like the we one we just found had days one ago. last month. Yeah. Versus mm-hmm. if there were years between. Yeah. Which is typically the case when we're talking about these. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as those connections are being made, 
the investigation to find the CRV killer or the Connecticut River Valley killer began. Okay. And at this point, investigators began examining prior homicides in the area. So after they make those discoveries in the like mid eighties, then they start going back and they're like, we wonder if any of these Mm. unsolved homicides could be connected to this serial killer. Smart. And so they find a case in 1978 and 1981 that they believed were victims of this same serial killer. And so, you know, that was just more reinforcement that, yeah, we're on the right track. Right. Yeah would have developed in some ways, but would likely be similar. So like you mentioned, we do have similarities in MO and then dump sites were very similar, mm. specific wound patterns. And so now we're looking for this common perpetrator. Okay. So he's been active for many years. We just didn't mm-hmm. know. Yes. And it's becoming more frequent, which is kind of terrifying oh yeah and just you just wait till the you just wait till we get into this okay so we're going to talk about the victims and then talk about the possibility of who this person could be okay the first victim was 27 year old kathy milliken and unlike you and me allison kathy actually loved being outside yeah yeah. She, in fact, on the day, I mean, I like it for spurts, but you know. I'm saying it like I feel bad for her. I was like, oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. She liked outside. <laughs> <laughs> but the day that she was last seen, so October 24th, 1978, she was actually going to photograph birds. Okay. I could get into that. Yeah. All right. And I, and I don't know if it was a hobby. Mm-hmm. Or if this was maybe part of her job because she did work at a publishing company. So I don't know if it was she was doing it for fun or if she was doing it to get paid. I gotcha. But she left work at the publishing company and went to Chandler Brook Wetland in New London, New Hampshire. And we know that she made it there because we had several people that saw her at the park snapping pictures. Okay. But she never made it home. Mm. Now, in the research that I did, there aren't a lot of details surrounding the girls or the discoveries of their bodies. Um, And like I said, I think it's just because there are so many that it would be a book. Right. But I do know that the next day, so on the 25th, Kathy's body was found just yards from where she had last been seen. Oh, goodness. And this first victim, Kathy, had been stabbed over 20 times in the neck and abdomen. Oh, wow. So that's, you know, normally we say a crime of passion because of the excessive, well, Mm. or this is why we have the word, the overkill, if you will. Yeah. And, you know, she's the first. So originally this murder was not connected to... The Connecticut River Valley killer. It wasn't until later on 
after those two bodies were def- were found like in the mid 80s that her case was connected to this and they did that based on her age cuz they're all ish similar ages okay and her location and this the treatment of her remains okay the next victim was mary critchley on july 25th 1981 this university of vermont student disappeared near interstate 91 she was believed to have been hitchhiking to waterbury vermont also people talk about how strange the names of cities are in the state of kentucky some of these names are weird <laughs> i like it though i do theirs sound i guess ours sound more redneck theirs sound more dignified yeah this is true <laughs> they're somewhere classy ours are like and none such Kentucky. <laughs> There's are like in yeah. Waterbury, Vermont. She was last seen by a friend who dropped her off near exit 13 of the Massachusetts Turnpike. And that's why they believe that she was um, hitchhiking because she'd been dropped off oh. near an exit. On August 9th, her body was found in a wooded area off University Stage Road in Unity, not University Stage Road, Unity Stage Road in Unity, New Hampshire, about 80 miles from where she was last seen. Oh, so she's a, quite a distance from mm-hmm. where she was last seen. Yep. And she was one that just the condition of her body and how brutal the wounds were and how long she'd been out in the you know heat of summer at this point the medical examiner wasn't able to determine the true cause of death but she was somewhere in that general vicinity of the other body even though she was in vermont yeah because it's all within like that 50 mile radius of that interesting Mm -hmm. okay The third confirmed victim of the CRV killer is 17-year-old. See, they're all kind of right around the same age, and then you get a few that are just, just a little Outliers. bit different. Mm-hmm. So was a 17-year-old nurse's aide and high school student named Bernice Cortemanch, and she was last seen by her boyfriend's mom in Claremont, New Hampshire, on May 30th, 1984. And it was believed by most that she, too was hitchhiking specifically to see her boyfriend in Newport. But we know she never reached her final destination because she was later reported missing. Okay. So she doesn't get wherever she's supposed to be going. So this is our second hitchhiker. I'm making Mm -hmm. notes by the way, as you're talking, since we have so (laughs) many. So that way I can make an educated comment at the end. At the end. Yes. She wasn't seen again until April 19th, 1986. So she's missing for quite a while. When a fisherman happened upon her remains near the Sugar River in Newport, New Hampshire. So forensic evidence did, or their examination, I guess, did uncover evidence of knife wounds to the chest and a really bad injury to her head and then it also looked like her throat had maybe been slit because it suffered some like signs of injury as well and this is a confirmed victim of the connecticut mm-hmm. all of these right now are confirmed okay yeah i just needed that for my notes 
<laughs> Just jotting it down. That's right. On July 22nd, 1984, 26-year-old Ellen Ruth Fried was last seen around 2 a.m. at Leo's Market in Claremont, New Hampshire. This supervising nurse seemed to be from what just passerby or saw on the payphone at this local shop. And then we were later able to verify that she was on the phone with her sister at that payphone. And her sister told investigators that they actually talked on the payphone for over an hour. Gosh, that's a lot of quarters. Yeah. And I don't know if it was because she just had that much to say or if because she was scared because Um. her sister also told investigators that Ellen commented several times throughout their conversation that the same car was driving back and forth like it was watching her. Oh, that takes me back. I'm getting Angela Hammond vibes of the case we covered with the payphone. See, I knew that we had covered one that there was a payphone and like a car that either Mm -hmm. parked or kept driving by. But I couldn't remember who it was. Yep. Angela Hammond. Because isn't that the one the boyfriend like chases the car? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, he chases the truck. Transmission goes out or something. Right. Oh, just when he's getting close. That's a case that sticks with me. So y'all need to go back and listen if you haven't then. Yeah. To episode 93 Mm because that was a good one yes so she is on the phone ellen is with her sister and tells her that the car is driving back and forth she does end the call with her sister but she fails to return to work at valley regional hospital the next day Hmm. and so immediately there was concern that something very bad had happened to her because she just wasn't the type of person to miss a shift and not call in or not let her like somebody know that she wouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. So that very same day, the next day, the 23rd, her car was found abandoned on Jarvis road, which was just a few miles from where she had stopped to use that payphone. So they found the car rather quickly, but it actually takes them until September 16th, 1985 to find her skeletal remains and she was found in an isolated wooded area off the banks of the sugar river in newport river we got another river Mm -hmm. it's the same one Hmm. and the post-mortem examination revealed evidence of multiple stab wounds and this was one that said there could have been sexual assault though it isn't confirmed it said probable Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. So as you can imagine, the community is feeling very uneasy. There's been four smart, innocent, seemingly decent women murdered within the confines of what was believed to be a very safe area. What's right. crazy to me is that we've already talked about four and we're nowhere cl- close to being done. Gosh, that's sad. Eva Morse was a 27 year old single mom. She was working hard at both bettering herself and the life that she was able to provide for her family. But on July 10th, 1985, she was last seen hitchhiking. So again, another hitchhiker mm-hmm. near the border of Charlestown, New Hampshire, along Route 12. And just like all the others, the time that she was seen hitchhiking would be the last time anyone would see her alive. She too was reported missing, but despite police efforts, she was not located quickly she wasn't located until april 25th 1986 almost a year later when loggers in unity new hampshire and we've already also talked about unity new hampshire found her about 500 feet from where mary's body was discovered in 1981 gosh so it's almost as though i can't remember where i put my keys 10 minutes ago this person is within feet of where they have mm-hmm. disposed of a body years prior which tells me that they're familiar with that area because otherwise there's no way you'd yeah you would know mm-hmm. to, oh like you would know to go back to this same little right dirt road to drop another body you would you would never be able to find it again unless you were exactly from there. exactly and like you said i can't even find my phone unless i use a little call button on my Apple watch. So yeah, like, that's what I have to do too. Yeah. So similar form of attack cause of death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There were um, evidence of knife wounds, both to her chest and neck. The next victim we're going to talk about is Linda Moore. She was a happily married 36 year old living with her husband in Saxton's river, Vermont. On April 15th, 1986, she kissed her husband goodbye for the last time. At 2 p.m. that day, Linda was doing some yard work alone outside her home. But I think that, from what I could gather in my research, she lived, like, in a subdivision. Because okay. people see her doing the yard work. So, it's not okay. like she's out in the sticks. Mm-hmm. That evening, her husband actually returned home about 3 p.m. So, within an hour of the last time she was seen outside. And when he walked through the door, he found his wife's dead body in the living room, bearing 25 knife wounds. Wow. So to me, this one is also a little bit of an outlier because she's at home. In a subdivision. And the crime scene suggested a fierce struggle took place. 
there were no signs of a forced entry or ransacking. So they think she let this person in willingly. Which means they could have said that they were some kind of a salesman. Because that was common. Yeah. Like an encyclopedia salesman or something like that. Where you would answer the door anyway. Vacuums. Mm-hmm. And numerous witnesses reported seeing a slightly stocky, dark-haired man that was carrying a blue knapsack lingering about the Moore's home the day of the murder. So walking past it one way, then coming back the other way, standing on the sidewalk. So just being a little bit sketchy. Yeah. And the man was thought to be between 20 and 25 years old. So that's pretty young. Mm Mm-hmm. And he was clean-shaven, he had a round face, and was wearing dark-rimmed glasses. And the following year, police did release a composite sketch, and I have placed that on the next page for you. I mean, other than his glasses being off-center, like he's knocked them to the side, the sketch looks like it could be anybody. (laughs) I mean, Mm -hmm. he's got normal, uh, there's nothing that really stands out about his nose, about his lips, about his eyes, even about the glasses or really mm-hmm. the hair. Well, I would say he has a very round jawline. Like yeah. It doesn't have a distinct chin. Yeah. But that's about it. That's about it. Mhm. Yeah, now that you mentioned the glasses, it's like I can't look away. Why I are know. they not centered on his nose? I know. It's driving me crazy. On January 10th, 1987, Barbara Agnew was coming home from a skiing trip. Good for you, Barbara. With her friends in Stratton, Vermont. She was last seen, though, heading towards her home. So she's walking home in Norwich, Vermont. And obviously the weather's cold and snowy because it's January and Vermont. So it should be no surprise when that evening snowplows were out and about preparing the roadways for the next morning's travel. And the the New England states are on it in terms of those snowplows being out. I remember when I was in New Jersey, we had like, it was like 12 inches of snow and we had a 90 minute delay of school. We would have been out here in Kentucky for about two weeks. Yeah. A week at least. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They would have canceled it before the first snowflake hit the pavement. Just on the off chance we did get snow. They are on it in New England. So these snowplows, I believe it. So no surprise. But what was a surprise and unexpected was that one particular driver found on his route, Barbara's green BMW at a northbound interstate rest stop in Hartford, Vermont. Hmm. Now, this may not be weird upon first thought you know yeah, it's just a car people have to pee so mm-hmm. perhaps she's just yeah. yeah what is weird though is the door was cracked open and there was blood on the steering wheel <gasps> and in the back seat oh no yeah and when investigators arrived they actually found some of her blood-stained belongings in a nearby dumpster at that rest area mm. So she was attacked in her car. Yes. Which I think is like, which we talk about this when we get to the profile of this person. Mm -hmm. But I just think they have no concern 
about the location that they commit these in. Because this that's pretty brave yeah. at a rest area. Right. Well, because, you know, not as many people stop at rest areas today. But when I was younger, that was the only yeah. place we would stop at to, like, for a potty break on vacation, you know, as we're driving to vacation or something like that. Or mm -hmm. as soon as we would enter a new state, we would stop at the rest area and we would get brochures and all of that. So they were very well trafficked places in the 80s. Several months would pass, though, before Barbara's remains were located. On March 28th, 1987, her body was found near an apple tree on Advent Hill Road, which is a wooded area in Heartland, Vermont. And it was about 12 miles from the rest area where her car was found. I read in my research that she had multiple stab wounds to the neck and chest and she also had some defense wounds and in some of my research they called them disabling wounds but i don't know what that means i don't know if it's you know they stabbed her in the back and then she couldn't fight back or they cut her achilles tendon and so she couldn't walk i don't know but that's the only thing i could think of that's interesting yeah Something that would incapacitate her. With no witnesses and very little evidence, investigators were at a standstill after the death of Barbara. And so that's when they bring in a criminal psychologist named John Philpin to develop a profile of the killer because they knew at this point, obviously, we're looking at a serial killer. So right. they bring in this guy to help them. Okay. And he actually started by... You know, he tells them, I want all the information. I want the reports of the crime scene. I want autopsy reports. I want photographs of the autopsy. I want photographs of the crime scene. I want all of the information that would be available to you be made available to me. Okay. Makes and sense. And that's what they did. So they give him all this information. Mm -hmm. Yes. And according to Unsolved Mysteries in the beginning, Philpin's main thing that he did he quote made several trips out to the locations where bernice and ellen were killed the first few times he went was simply to have something of a feel for the place he had several questions he wanted answered like what could he hear what could he smell what was the place like what would it have felt like to be there how could this crime this very quote-unquote bizarre dance between two people, how could it have been choreographed in this space? How could it have happened? End okay. quote. The wording is a bit bizarre to me of all of that, but I understand conceptually what he means about is there something unique about this place that could tell us something about the perpetrator? But I, I feel like the phrases very b bizarre dance between two people is a little bit odd to use when we're talking about a brutal murder. Mm -hmm. Just saying. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I don't know this guy, obviously, but I do think he would be a little bit quirky mm -hmm. because... He said that when he gets to the point where he's beginning to develop some type of feel for what is going on in the mind of the killer. And he kind of reminded me of what is the guy that played the Joker and then he committed suicide? Oh, Heath Ledger. 
Yeah, and he like said that he got so consumed by right. the character of the Joker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This guy kind of reminds me of that a little bit. But he mm-hmm. said like once he started to get the feel of the killer that he likes to go back to the scene using what he learned to go through what might have happened as if he were the killer. <clears throat> so like what would the killer be hearing? Can you hear the noise of the river because it's close by? Or would that be something that's blocked out? Would I be so focused on this activity of killing someone that I would hear cars pass by or the river rushing past? What does it tell him about like his ability to perceive sounds, feelings, and sight? So... He really gets into the psyche of these people. Yeah. I don't delve quite that far in my analysis. No. I don't I don't think my little brain no. could handle that. No. I try to be more logical, not feeling. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And he did through his method develop a profile and okay. here are some of the things that he said this killer would do or feel or whatever okay so he believes that the killer drives a lot so that's one thing i would agree with that Hmm. he believes that the killer makes an effort to select places that look low risk i don't know if i would necessarily agree with that since we have a rest area and a subdivision i mm-hmm. I don't know. Unless they're talking about where he dumps the bodies. Okay. That might be the case. He believes that the killer picks sites or locations over victims. So he doesn't necessarily stalk a victim. But he basically has several locations that he goes from to find a victim. That reminds me a little bit of... So he sticks to certain locations. Okay. Of like Israel Keys the serial killer where he would, you know, Mm -hmm. he had the murder kits for lack of a better phrase and then would just randomly pick a victim. So it sounds like he thinks this killer is similar. Yeah. He said that he believed the killer likes to take women back to a pre-selected location if possible to commit the murder. Okay. I don't know that I necessarily agree with maybe maybe like 60% of the time he does that, but not every time. Right. Yeah, The especially the ones that were within like yards of one another. On those, it almost does seem like he had the location picked. He just then had to go mm-hmm. put, find the woman to put in it. Yeah. But then you have the, you know... The in-home one, which I said is, yeah, it just kind of stands out to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Philpin also believes that the murderer wants to scare his victims before murdering them, and he feels that he has ownership of the women that he has kidnapped or that he is killing. Hmm. Wonder why he says that. I read that. In one of my articles, I'm trying to remember exactly what it said, but basically he was like women were evil and like it made him so mad 
just to see women that it was like he had to do something Mm. and that was his way i guess of getting rid of a problem showing showing that power over them Mm -hmm. i would also agree that that makes sense especially given the fact that there wasn't the sexual aspect to it that it is more about mm-hmm. just anger so that does make sense mm-hmm. he also believed that the killer was very deliberate methodical and calm and that he didn't really get rattled um, he was very much in control and very patient about the job that he was doing which I think he would have to be considering some of the locations that he killed these people in mm-hmm well, and he's killing them there, but then transporting them to the place where he wants to place their body. So that obviously does oh, require yeah. thought. So even if an act is in a moment of rage or whatever, there's what follows, which is very methodical and deliberate. Yeah, and I think you would have so many emotions i would assume running through your body after you've stabbed someone 26 times right and for him to be able to collect himself enough to transport this body somewhere else i think does speak to how much he is in control of his emotions yes and then he also says that he is a loner that prefers his own thoughts i don't really know where that part's coming from either i just think when I picture this guy, I picture, this is probably very stereotypical, but somebody that is just like in their house watching the Game Show Network all the time. Listen, don't diss the Game Show Network. Oh, I love the Game Show Network. Okay. <laughs> so they're like us. Yeah. But a little yeah, <laughs> disassociated from reality. Yeah, yeah. And like, yeah, like I said, like they talk to like a stuffed parrot. Yeah. So this next one, Allison, I think is really going to um, blow your mind. Okay. So the last confirmed victim is a lady named Jane Borowski. Mm-hmm. Her story is different. To hear about Jane, about the potential victims of the Connecticut River Valley Killer and the theories of who the perpetrator might be. Tune in to part two next Thursday when we discuss those topics and more. Plus, don't forget to stay tuned just a moment longer after our closing song for our special announcement. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next week.
love notes with Maggie and Allison. Whoop, whoop. And first, before we get into all of that, we are coming into the home stretch, my Yay. friends. Yay! <laughs> Until this little guy is here, I'm and we so can. Excited. Look at all the snuggles and all of the kisses. I know. But it is a very nerve-wracking and exciting time. Yes, both of those. I cannot wait to meet him because Sleutowns, I'm sure you can tell this already. But Maggie and Anthony were born to be parents. Absolutely. So we did want to talk to you a little bit about it, Sleutowns, because Mm -hmm. Maggie and I decided, obviously, that she is going to need to take some weeks off from the podcast, you know, as baby comes so she can Mm -hmm. get accustomed to motherhood. And so she is there for every moment of that sweet baby's life with no added stress or time commitments at the (laughs) beginning. So... But it's not going to be for a long time that Allison will be doing the show by herself. It will just be for a few weeks, which will be a lot of work on Allison because. Well, the podcast, a podcast is a lot. Yeah, period. And it helps because we rotate weeks. So we have extra time to work on the episodes as they're coming out. But she's not going to have that for a couple weeks. So. We're all going to have to be, all of our listeners, very patient and very gracious. Yes, please. Because it is only temporary. (laughs) Right. So, please bear with me. Uh, What isn't temporary, how about that transition there, (laughs) is our love for our listeners. And we are always thinking about you guys. And we want to do what is right by you. So, I will do my best to keep everything caught up. Yep. So, it'll be good and speaking of love for our listeners we have so much love going out to our newest patreon member abby so welcome abby to the cnc fam we're very happy to have you over there and to all of our 12 15 and 20 dollar a month patreon supporters your swag boxes are going out tomorrow so you'll get them soon and this box We try to do something like a little different for this box and the next couple ones actually Mm -hmm. will be filled with things that I like or things that kind of represent my life and things happening with me. So I really hope that you love the items that are in there. Yes. And then the next box will be my favorite things. And then the February box is going to be some clothing. So if you want some bonus content, join our Patreon. The link is Mm -hmm. in the show notes. And if you want gifts in the mail, because who doesn't, join at one of those higher tiers. And that's exactly what you'll get every quarter. So all you need to do is go to patreon.com slash coffee and cases to join today. Also, just a reminder, we're coming up on the deadline for voting for the podcast awards. So we wanted to remind you again of this very exciting fact. And again, that we are finalists for the podcast awards best female hosted podcast. So please, if you were selected, consider voting for us in round two because... We would be eternally grateful. Yes, we would be eternally grateful. And make sure you check your email, including your spam folder, to Mm -hmm. see if you were 
selected to be in the final round of voting for the podcast awards. If so, as Maggie said, we would appreciate your vote again, and maybe we can bring home the win this year. Right, because we, as a group, as the Coffee and Cases, can show everyone that an indie podcast like ours can beat out those big name shows. Yes, we can can do it. Yeah, we can. And with that, all of our love is going out to each and every one of you. Until next week, Sleuthhounds. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Nom nom.